Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God that we are gathered in the name of our Lord Jesus. It is such a privilege to look out at all of your faces and to hear all of our voices collectively go before the Lord as we think about this, uh, this imagery of a pleasing aroma, which we'll talk about more today, this pleasing aroma to the Lord, the praises of God's people going up before him exalting him, lifting up his name. What would we uh, rather be doing this morning than being here in this place with these people worshiping our God, offering up our praises to him. So uh, we praise God for another time to gather as a local church. Our passage for today is Exodus 30, verses 1 to 10. So if you'll go there in your Bibles. Exodus 30. Verses 1 to 10. Our time in Exodus has brought us to the tabernacle and its priests. And this is where we've been for the last couple of months. Uh, I looked back and I think it was right at it was the end of August when we first started to look at the tabernacle, introducing the tabernacle. So we've been here for about eight weeks as we've looked at this theme. And uh, as I've said many times, this is one of the things that I so appreciate uh, as a Christian. And this is before uh, becoming a pastor, before, before uh, being a regular preacher. Uh, but one of the things I so appreciate about expositional preaching is that uh, you get to see all of these little series within the larger book. And so you get to cover so much terrain and so for the last eight weeks, you could say we've been in a series on the tabernacle, which really is just situated within our time in Exodus. So what is it? What is this tabernacle? It is the place where the God of the universe dwelt with and met with his people. Now, that in and of itself is mind-blowing. Uh, it's easy for us as we go through the details and we look at everything just to forget the basic truth of that. That the God who made all of the heavenly bodies, all of the planets, all of the stars, made our planet, made everything here on earth. That God who made all creatures, visible and invisible, would dwell with his people would be made known to his people with that kind of intimacy, with that kind of access. So that in and of itself should really blow our minds that the God of the universe, not just some, some little uh, God of one of the peoples of the ancient world, as, as some academics see Yahwehism. Yahwehism is just another instance of ancient Near Eastern religion borrowing and gathering from other ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern Mesopotamian and Canaanite religions, just pooling pull, Egyptian, pooling it all together. What we understand to be truth is that the God of the universe, the God who made all things, the God who made man in his own image, chose a man, Abraham, and through his descendants he chose a people and he made himself known to that people and dwelt among them. He dwelt with Israel. The Israelites had experienced God's presence through the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. But now God was going to locate himself here at the tabernacle. 
He was going to, to be present permanently with his people in this place. Now we have to keep in mind that this is where we're headed at the very end of Exodus. So as we're going through all the details, all the minutia, I would encourage you just to keep in view where we're going, and I'm going to read that to you now, at the very last section, the very last verses, and there they are over on the poster. This is the very end of Exodus. All that we're reading, all that we've been doing for the last two months is about this. Chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is after... God has finished giving the instructions. Even after the golden calf, the fact that God would do this, that he would come after that incident. This is after it has been built. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. They are following the Lord. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." So we're not just talking about the presence of the Lord being here in some sort of um, beginning way, and then the people are just to sort of know that's the case. God manifests his presence by means of this cloud during the day and this fire during the night. All they have to do is walk outside of the tent, their own personal tent, and look over at this holy tent, And there they will see the visible manifestation of the presence of the glory of the Lord. So that's where we're headed in Exodus. In case you just are getting lost a little bit, that's where we're going. We're we're driving towards that destination. But where are we headed in the Bible? That's probably the more significant question for us. Where are we headed as we go through the tabernacle? Where are we headed in the Bible? In other words, what is the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, leaning towards? Or what is it picturing? And so in case you're, you're sort of losing the relevance for this, for the Christian today, as we understand the whole Bible and the placement of this a section within the whole Bible, if you're losing sight of that, let me just give you three things. Three things that are pictured, three things that the tabernacle is leaning towards in the whole scope of Scripture. So the first of those is the incarnation of Christ. These aren't the sermon points. That's why you don't see anything up there quite yet. So uh, this is still just getting there. But first... The incarnation of Christ. It's picturing the incarnation of Christ. It is leaning towards that. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, this is God's eternal word through which he made the worlds. This is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father, the word of God. And the word became flesh. And here it is. And dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now you might think, I can understand that apart from the tabernacle. And indeed you can. The gospel's going out in the first century and pagans are hearing it and people who haven't heard about the tabernacle are hearing this for the first time. They're saying, wow, this is amazing. And they're able to understand it in that limited way. But how much more a person who reads that in light of what we just read at the end of Exodus with the glory of the Lord filling this tabernacle. God came and he pitched his tent. He tabernacled in a human being, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a living, moving, breathing tabernacle of God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, both God and man, the incarnation. That's what we're going to be celebrating in two months, not celebrating gifts, not celebrating Santa, not celebrating any of the things that we associate with Christmas. We are a celebrating, we are celebrators of the incarnation of the eternal word of God who became flesh. And how much more we come to see the gravity of that in light of our time looking at the tabernacle. Second, a second thing that is pictured here is regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit would come and circumcise hearts. That the Holy Spirit would come in the new covenant and write the law of God on the heart. And so we read this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So all that we just said about God tabernacling in a person, now we come to see that that person died, was buried, was raised, ascended, and then he, as Acts 2 says, pours out his spirit to live inside of his sheep, his flock, his body, his people. So now we become the temple. The glory of that, that Christ, who is the temple, imparts his spirit in order that we might become the temples of the living God. One of the wonders of gathering like this together in corporate worship is that here we are gathered as a bunch of temples of the living God. Third, a third thing that is pictured or that is leaned towards with the tabernacle is the consummation of all things. The end of the whole story. And we get that in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, and here it is, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
So whether it is in the Old Testament with the tabernacle or in the incarnation at the Gospels, the temple part of that tabernacle picture, the incarnation in the Gospels, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of God's people, or the consummation of all things, what we find is that this great theme of being with God is massive in the Bible. Being with our God. It is one of the ways that you can know whether or not you are a Christian. Do you really want to be with God? There's a lot of things that Christianity holds out. A lot of beauties, a lot of riches, a lot of benefits. And a lot of hardships as well. But a lot of wonders, a lot of riches. So the question for us all is just to consider, have we really come to embrace the gospel of Christ And have we really come to taste that God is the one whom we want to be with forever? Or is it all these other things? Is it the gifts, not the giver, that we signed up for? Uh, Like in Pilgrim's Progress, you, you see people signing up for the gifts, not for the king himself. Do you want to be with this king? Do you want to be with the Lord? This is one of the great themes of the Bible, and it begins in many ways with the tabernacle. So as Christians today, looking back on the tabernacle, our minds are immediately drawn to these three things. In light of what I just said, our trust in Christ as God with us, as we look at the tabernacle and all of its details and all of its symbolism, our mind is drawn to Christ. Our trust is in Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Our reliance is on this Holy Spirit as God within us. He is the one who moves and energizes and empowers all that we are and do. And our hope in the life to come where God will permanently dwell with his people. So what's my point? The tabernacle fills us with hope and joy in Christ. And so let me just plead with you. Is is it doing that for you? Are you shutting down? Are you shutting off? Is this one of those boring patches of the Bible where you're just trudging through? Man, I wish we could get to something good. Is that how you feel? Because let me just encourage you to think about all that I've just said and all those great themes and all those glories and all those riches that make something like John 1.14 pop when we see all the hope for the future, all the comfort and joy that we have in the present and all that we remember and take heart in from the past The tabernacle points us to all of it. Over the last few weeks, we've been discussing the priests, those who serve and minister within the tabernacle. But today we return to the tabernacle furniture and specifically the furniture inside the tent of meeting. And so the title for the sermon this morning is The Altar Inside. The Altar Inside. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. little shorter passage this week, chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. This is the word 
of the living God. You shall make an altar. Keep in mind, this is still the Lord speaking to Moses in the glory cloud on the mountain. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord or before Yahweh throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering and you shall not pour out you shall not pour a drink offering on it Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations it is most holy to the Lord you can go ahead and be seated let's pray and ask for God's grace as we seek to understand what's going on here and what that says to us as Christians living today. Father, we are so grateful for your word and we ask that your spirit would work and move in each of our hearts. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit if we're Christians living within us. What wonder, what joy. And God, we are we're just mindful of our own weaknesses. We're mindful of our sins as we confess them every week. We come here and we confess our sins and yet we consider even in all these sacrifices that you, you dwelt with your people despite their sin. You dwelt with, their peop- with your people through the atonement that was provided. And Lord, we, we think this morning about the atonement that has been provided for us through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. God, we think about the fact that we're not perfect. We're not in any way perfect. We don't measure up to your righteous standard. We fall short of the glory of God. We sin. We've sinned already today in our thoughts, in our desires, in our willing, in our doing, in our speaking, in our neglect, in our selfishness in our self-consciousness, and our pride, and our envy, in all kinds of ways, Lord, there are many sins represented in this room right now. And Father, we just come in utter amazement knowing that Jesus has covered our sins with his own blood. And we can come to you and and you receive us and you hear us and you receive our broken praise. You receive our stained piety and you receive it through Christ, our high priest, our substitutionary sacrifice. Through the intercessory work of, 
of Him at your right hand and of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So Father, we just delight in your presence this morning. We pray that you would continue to purify our worship, purify our thoughts and our hearts. But would we take heart in Christ and in who we are in Him. We thank you for this time in your word and we pray that you would guide us now to understand it, that it would be preached clearly and that we would understand it and your spirit would use it to convict us and encourage us in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our focus this morning is this incense altar, the altar inside the tent. And our passage is clearly divided into two parts. So I'll give those to you here as the two points. If you're a note taker, you write those down. Even if you're not a note taker, these will be the anchors. Uh, I like to think of these as stepping stones or rungs on a ladder or anchors for us. As we go through the text, it ties us to the text so that the text itself is guiding what is said. The text itself is generating the explanation. We're not explaining something out here in left field. We're explaining a text and trying to understand it and trying to to see what it says to us from the Lord as we consider thus says the Lord. Every time we read the Bible, thus says the Lord. And so we're going to look at two things this morning. The furniture, uh, verses 1 to 6, and the function Verses 7 to 10, it's clearly divided in that way. What is this thing, and then how is it supposed to function? So let's look first at the furniture, verses 1 to 6. Let's read that again. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it In front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And you remember when the ark of the covenant was introduced, the mercy seat was introduced, this is where God meets with his people. We know that God meets with his people in the whole of the tabernacle structure, through the altar, on the outside, all the way to the inner room. But this is pictured as God's throne room, where God is present there in the holy of holies or the most holy Place. So here we get a description of this particular piece of furniture, the altar of incense. This is not to be confused, just to be clear, this is not to be confused with the altar in the courtyard. So your wires might be getting crossed at this point. We already talked about the altar. This is a different altar, much smaller than the one we've discussed before. This is not the altar in the courtyard, the bronze altar. This is the altar inside the tent. If everything that happened on the bronze altar happened in here, the whole tent would burn down pretty quickly. This is the altar inside the tent. The golden altar, not the bronze altar, but the golden altar, the altar for incense as it is is introduced in verse 1. 
you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. So make that distinction in your mind. And as we'll see, this piece of furniture is described functionally as it pertains to the work of the priest. We're going to see that in a moment. It is described in this functional way related to the priest. And so that is why it appears here in this section rather than in previous sections where the other pieces of furniture are described. And that you might be scratching your head on that. You're like, hold on a second. We already did that. We went to the most holy place. We talked about what was in there. We went out to the holy place. We talked about the furniture in there. Then we came outside, very logical. Hold on a second. What's going on here? We got, we got this thing. We got to bring it back. Why didn't we talk about it in there? Well, we were talking about the holy place. Well, you could say that we are still in the section dealing with the work of the priests. And so it's flowing out of that section. And so this piece of furniture is being highlighted in terms of its functionality, in terms of what it does, how it functions, and what is to be done with it. So what do we have here? As we've grown accustomed to, we get a description of the dimensions of this object, as well as the materials from which it is made. So I'm going to take a little bit of time Uh, To go through that, it is made of acacia wood. It is a square object. Its length and breadth are the same, one cubit or one and a half feet. So you imagine it being 18 inches or one and a half feet uh, in width and in length. The height is two cubits or three feet. So it's twice as tall as it is wide and long. And this, of course, makes it very accessible to one who is standing in front of it. It it has that functionality being three feet tall. Uh, It's able to be worked with from the priest. They're not not leaning down. It's not one foot tall, one and a half feet tall. It is three feet tall, and so it makes it accessible for the priest. Just as we saw with the bronze altar, it it has these little projections or horns on the top in each corner. And these are of one piece with the rest of it. So they're meant to be all made out of acacia wood, out of one piece. As that acacia wood is carved up, it is to be one piece, three feet tall, one by one square, and then horns coming out of each corner. So this is the basic wooden structure. And all of this is then covered in gold. So let me go ahead and give you the slide. And I think it has, uh, the the way they're reading this, with two rings on each side. I think it's probably better to see this as the way that it's worded here in relation to the table and the ark. Probably one ring on each side and then matched on the other side. This is not a very wide structure uh, as you would get with the table or as you got with the Ark of the Covenant uh, and all that's there. So uh, this is going to be, probably it's going to have one ring on each side. Pure gold for the object itself. Once again, we have this distinction between pure gold and gold. Verse 3 describes the pure gold. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. So pure gold for the actual wooden structure that is covered in gold. It is to be pure gold. And then we have just gold. You know, just gold for The rest of it, so gold for the molding and gold for the rings, verses 3 to 4. And you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. 
Now, we've seen this idea before, but we haven't talked about it in a little while. So let me just throw it back to you again. We have this idea of graded holiness. So everything about the tabernacle is meant to to be about the approach, the approach to God. The closer you get to, to the Lord, the closer you get to the holy objects before the Lord, the holier they become. And that is depicted in, with all of these curtains and all of the drawings on the curtains, the, the, embroider, the embroidery, rather, on the curtains. It's also depicted in the metals. And so as you begin to move out from the most holy place and through the holy place, you begin to move your way out to the courtyard, you're moving from pure gold to bronze. It's the imagery of descending holiness, So this is the idea of graded holiness, and we see that here, even with the pure gold versus the gold, untainted gold for that which wraps the object itself, and then those accoutrements on the outside of it, the molding as well as the rings, are just gold. So as with the Ark of the Covenant and the table of the bread of the presence, this object needs rings and poles so that it, it can be carried when the tabernacle is moved. Keep in mind, we're not talking about a temple at this point. There will be temples in Israel's history, and those will be static structures. Those will stay where they are. They're not meant to be transported. But this is a transported house. This is where the Lord tabernacles with his people. And we think about Jesus moving around. We think about God's people here, God's temples moving around. This is a transported structure. So there is the need for poles that would be used to carry it. When there's the teardown phase, these poles would be used to carry it to its next stage where it would be built back up. And I think these poles are significant in providing two reminders to the Israelites. And and, and by way of implication, providing two reminders to us this morning as we think about the Lord, as we think about the God of Israel, as we think about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one we call Abba when we pray. The first is that these poles are a reminder that God is guiding his people. They're going to have to move. And when they move... God is going to guide them. He's going to guide them to new places, to new locations. And so the poles are going to be needed to carry these things as the Lord directs them. As the Lord guides them. Another way to say that is as the Lord shepherds them. And it's just a a great reminder for us to consider this morning that the Lord is guiding us. The Lord is shepherding us. You know, sometimes we go through periods in our life where we just feel, and I'm sure the Israelites felt this uh, often, we just feel like God's not there. Where is the Lord? Where are you, God? The circumstances aren't looking good. Spiritual life stumbling along. Prayer time, Bible reading time, just not generating the feelings that you had before relationships with fellow Christians not going so well, things at home not going so well, falling to temptations. And we can just get to a point where we just really feel as though God's not there. He's absent. He's not guiding us. He's not shepherding us. And my encouragement to you is to consider the poles. 
Consider these poles. Consider the fact that as you move about and have your being, that God has not left us. He, he's with us. He's guiding us. And oftentimes he's guiding us in ways we can't discern. We just simply cannot discern. And the best example, as I've seen in the Bible for this, for me personally, is the example of Jacob. During all that Joseph stuff, before he finds out, that would have been an awfully dark period for Jacob. God had met with him. God had revealed himself to him. God had wrestled with him in person and done all these wonderful things, blessed him. And then there's this period of absolute darkness of soul. His son, dead. His favorite son, not a good idea to have a favorite child, but his favorite son is dead as he sees it. And God says nothing to Jacob, as far as we know, during that period, until all of a sudden he gets the message, uh, Joseph's alive. And he's in charge of Egypt. Uh, why don't you come on to Egypt? Whoa! God was there. All along, God was there. And the same is true in our lives. God guides us. He shepherds us just as he did the Israelites. Just as we see with these poles. The poles also remind us that, and reminded the Israelites, that they are actually headed somewhere. This is not a permanent situation. Being in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, with this temporary structure, this is not always the way it's going to be. And I think we, we think about that in our own lives. It, we're here now, but it's not always going to be this way. We're headed somewhere. God is leading his people. He's leading them to rest He's leading them to the promised land, and he is leading us to that rest with Jesus. As Paul says, and so we will be with the Lord. As we saw with the ark and the table, these poles are made of acacia wood and then overlaid with gold in the same way. So we see that parallel there with the other items in the most holy place and in the holy place. So that's the object. And verse 6 tells us where it goes. Look at verse 6 with me. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So this object, we're told here, is placed in the holy place. This is the first room that you come to when you enter the tabernacle tent. And so if you guys could put up a slide of the tent structure itself, once again, it is divided. See there the high priest in front there with his aphod, breastpiece on, his, his robe. But as you enter into this tent structure, that first room is the holy place. And uh, the, the lack of sort of supreme holiness uh, is demonstrated by the curtain. The curtain doesn't have the, the cherubim on it, those angelic beings that surround the throne of God. But the next curtain does, letting you know you're entering into the very presence of Yahweh, the presence of the king. You're entering into the throne room. This is, as it were, the foyer before you get to the throne room. This first room is like a foyer. So we see that the object, the incense altar, is to be placed, and you see it there with those horns, those projections, right in front of the second curtain. It is to be placed in that first room that the priest would enter into. 
And the language here suggests that it is placed in the center of the room as you have it depicted there with the table to its right and the lampstand to its left. But although it is placed, now this is important, although it is placed in the holy place, the first room, you can see from the language here that it is associated with the most holy place or the second room. Do you see that? That's very interesting. Its placement is here in the holy place, but its significance and its functionality bleeds over into and is connected with the most holy place, the second room where God met with and had mercy on his people. This is where the incense would go, as we'll discuss more in a moment. And that is why the writer of Hebrews seems to place this object in the most holy place. So someone's like, oh, we have a, we have a contradiction. By the way, any contradiction that, that some will point out in, in Scripture, say, well, well, there's a contradiction there, there's a contradiction there, there's a contradiction there. There are large volumes written on all of these. So if you really care, go and read. It amazes me how people would be so cynical and skeptical of the scriptures and was like, well, there's contradictions, contradictions. Can you share with me some of those contradictions, please? Now, they may have one or two that they can name. I ask, well, have you done any reading on how Christians have explained the relationship of those two texts and how one text interprets the other text and how there is an explanation? You know, Christians have been thinking about this, reading this, writing about this for two millennia. No. I haven't read any of that. But there's contradictions in the Bible. Are we being intellectually honest with data? Intellectually honest with evidence? Intellectually honest as we read and think? The problem with unbelief is not the intellect. It is a rebellious heart. It is a heart that loves self, hates and replaces God and rebels against the king. It is not merely a, a cerebral thing. It is not merely a stacking of the evidence thing. And as I've said before, you would get that impression from some apologists that if they can just stack the evidence high enough on one side, the rational, objective, neutral-minded thinker will come over to Christianity. Not so. Only the Holy Spirit can change the heart, and only the Holy Spirit can bring true, lasting confidence in the Word of God. This is one of the great points of Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion as he talks about how the Holy Spirit is the one who, who bears witness to the truthfulness of Scripture. And he, he goes through and he says, anyone who's trying to convince someone to come over to Christianity or to believe in the Bible by just mere evidence is, is just... It's a failing thing. It's a an act of futility. Only the Holy Spirit can make that certain in the heart. But then he goes on to give all these reasons why the Scriptures are reliable and credible. So go and take a look at that in book one of Calvin's Institutes. So anyway, I, my point is that there are some who would point out a contradiction here but I think when we read these texts together, we understand that this incense altar is uniquely placed, but it is in a sense misplaced with regard to its 
connection and function. So I'll read Hebrews 9, 3 to 4. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having, now it, it, it uses different language here in Greek, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And so the idea is that uh, the incense altar is placed in the first room, but that because of its function, it is as though it is in the second because of how it operates. One commentator, Victor Hamilton, says this, Aaron takes the incense from this altar on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies, thus establishing a close relationship between this altar and the inner sanctum a relationship allowed to no other piece of furniture outside of the holy place, the holiest place, rather. So those other two pieces of furniture, the table and the lampstand, they stay. They, they do not go into the most holy place, but the incense that is both upon the incense altar and that is burned there moves into the most holy place and is even carried into the most holy place by the high priest. So I'm hopeful that I didn't lose you there, but I think it's just important because some have said that there's a contradiction here between Exodus and Hebrews chapter 9. And if that interests you, I'll say it again, go and read. There are many commentators and things that you can read to look at that. I'm not going to belabor that uh, here any longer, but if you want to take a look at that, there are great explanations for understanding how those texts go together. So we've looked at the furniture, now we come to the function. This is where we begin to see a little bit more immediately how this relates to our own lives today. So now the function, verses 7 to 10. So we've already gotten a sense for the functionality of this object. It follows the section on priests, so it's still kind of connected to that. Its height makes it accessible and usable, so it's, a, it's, it's meant to be used and it is explicitly called, in verse 1, an altar on which to burn incense. So in that sense, the functionality of it has already been introduced to us. But now, let's look at its function in a little more detail. So look with me in verses 7 to 10. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning, when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. These verses can be divided, I think, into three parts. So you can write these down if you're interested. These are subpoints, you could say. Uh, these verses divided in this way. So first we have operation, and then prohibition, and then purification. These are the three things going on here with regard to its functionality. So first, operation. Operation. This is a place for burning incense. So if you don't get anything else about this piece of furniture, get that. That's what it is. That's in the name. 
It is the incense altar. It is a place for burning incense. And that is to take place every morning and every evening at twilight, day by day. This is to be done also in conjunction with two other tasks. Two other tasks that happen daily at both morning and twilight. As we read, well, here we read in this passage, the tending and lighting of the lamps. So every morning and every twilight, there is to be incense burned and there is to be the tending or lighting of the lamps. And as we read last week, the two daily sacrifices also are done every single day. So chapter 29, verses 38 to 39. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So what are we getting here? I think this is, this is really interesting for us as we think about understanding the Old Testament and the sacrifices. What we're getting here is a picture of what happens every day at this place. Right, so we've been, we've been given all these little bits of, of data, all these little bits of, uh, of information. Now we get to pull it together and we get to see that at the very least, there's all kinds of other things going on here, periodically and yearly, but at the very least we need to understand that the priest knows, the high priest knows that there are to be three things that happen at this place every morning and three things that happen at this place every evening at twilight. There is the tending of the light, there is the offering of the incense, and there is the offering of the burnt offering, the sacrifice on the altar outside of the tent. This language of before the Lord and this emphasis on regularity reminds us that it is so important for us as God's people to appear before the Lord regularly, as it were. Now you say, well, hold on a second. We appear before the Lord always because God is always present with us. True. God is always here and we are always before his face. True. But no emphasis on that should take away from the fact that we regularly need to, as it were, present ourselves before the Lord. And let me just say to you, as I was talking about earlier, if you're in a place where you're just spiritually dry, I talked about this a little last week, you, you feel distant from the Lord, how about just starting there? You don't have to go read two or three books. You don't have to memorize a book of Scripture. You don't have to go and climb Mount Everest. Just try this periodically, regularly throughout the day, at set times, even daily. But follow this model, morning and evening, to present yourself before your God, to call on the name of the Lord, as we read with Abraham, to, to seek the Lord in prayer, to read his word, to hear from the Lord, and to pray his word back to him, to give him thanks through Jesus Christ for all that he has done for us. As we read so many times in the New Testament, to give thanks to God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Present yourself to the Lord. So first we get operation. Second, we get prohibition. The activity here with regard to this incense altar 
is to be closely regulated. So verse 9 says this, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Now, the composition of this particular incense will be given in verse 34. So we're not there yet. That's a little bit later. The composition of what sorts of spices and so forth will go into this incense. But the important thing to note is that this incense is to be holy. And we know what that means. It is to be set apart for this particular purpose and exclusively for this purpose. So we read this in verses 37 to 38, which we'll come to later. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to Yahweh. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. And you can imagine that happening. People are like, that smells good. I, I, I smell it coming from the tabernacle. I can smell it. It's taking over the tent. It's, it's wonderful. I love that. Of course, it, it would have smelled nice. It would have been lovely. It would have been wonderful like, to, go, to go along with the curtains and the colors and the gold. It, it, it's meant to be that. It would have been better probably than any perfume that anyone in Israel, male or female, could make. This was the top. But this was to go in a separate cabinet. This was not to be used for your own personal scent. This was to be used for the worship of God. So when we put these two passages together, verses 37 and 38, and then these verses here, we realize that there is to be no foreign incense and there is to be no common incense, right? No common incense that you would use for other purposes, And no incense that would be unauthorized, that would be something other than that which God had stipulated for his people to use. And as I was thinking about this, I think one way to kind of capture this is that there is a particular smell to right worship. Think about that for a moment. Right worship, you know, we all know, and I've I've read this before, I don't have anything to, to quote or cite for you here. But I've, I've read before, I've heard before that, this, the, that our smell, our sense of smell, is one of the closest attached to our memory. And we all know that, right? I mean, you, you, you smell a cologne that you, that you wore in middle school, and you're like, oh. You, you, have all, you have all these memories, or maybe really terrible memories. I don't know. Good memories, bad memories, but you have memories. Like, all of a sudden, you're transported to 13 years old because you smell some kind of cologne or some sort of perfume. We know how powerful that can be. We know how powerful that sense of smell can be. And so in that sense, the people were able to smell right worship. It was just another indicator that the right thing is happening here. No golden calf stuff, no Egyptian stuff, no Canaanite stuff, no Baal stuff, Ashtoreth stuff, Moloch, any of those other deities, those false gods. But Yahweh stuff is happening here. Holy stuff. And the smell would have been associated 
with all of that. An example of wrong worship, by contrast, is given in Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 2. We read there that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Despite all they had heard, despite the role they had been given, they disobeyed the Lord. They offered something that God had not commanded, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then the Lord sternly commanded Aaron, don't you mourn for them. Well, that's striking to anyone who's a parent. That's heartless. That's cruel, God. You might be thinking, no, this tells us the gravity of God's holiness. And it's just meant to drive that home. So let that settle. Let that sit. It was so unholy. It was so ungodly. It was such an affront to God's character and his grace that they would offer something against what he had commanded. And so the Lord says, no weeping, no mourning, no tearing of the clothes, no sackcloth and ashes, none of that. That is what they deserved. Just another reminder of God's holiness and the importance of right worship. Also, we read here that there are to be no burnt offerings, grain offerings, or drink offerings made on this altar. And that's just another reminder that there's no need to feed the Lord, right? In pagan temples, you would put these things close to the throne room of the deity, and they would, they would feed on those things. And they, and they would feed on those things in some kind of real way. How you define real there is, is, is difficult to understand from culture to culture. But even among the Greeks, you know, that uh, they would have Zeus or Athena or one of the other Greek gods or goddesses, they would receive the sacrifices and that would be food for them. They don't need it to live. They're immortals, but they need it for food. They want it. They desire it. Yahweh is not that kind of God. He's not a sort of inflated human like all the gods of the nations. He is God. He needs no food. He needs no sleep. Finally, we see here purification. Verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year. Throughout your generations, it is most holy to the Lord. What is described here is in conjunction with the day of atonement, where blood would be placed on the mercy seat and on the horns of the bronze altar. And you can go and read about that. I would encourage you to read that, listen to that. I I listened to that uh, chapter so many times yesterday, just trying to kind of wrap my head around the Day of Atonement, what actually happens there specifically. And go there, read Leviticus 16. But this is in conjunction with what happens there on the Day of Atonement. This is where blood would be placed on the mercy seat, and the Lord would see that blood, and he would pass over the sins of his people as it were. On that day, the entire tabernacle would be purified, atoned for because of the sins or the defilement of the people. It needs to be atoned for. It needs to be purified. The altar never sinned. The incense altar never sinned. But the human beings associated with it did sin. Those who carried it from place to place were sinners. The high priest who's offering on it, who who is offering incense on it, a sinner. 
So we see the need for it to be cleansed of its defilement. So here we see daily work, but also yearly work in conjunction with the Day of Atonement. All right, so as we close this morning, what are we to make of this incense? And these, I think, are the most significant things we need to walk away with today. So here they are. I have four of them. The first is lordship. The image of incense is the image of preparing the room of the king. The incense is meant to remind us as it is going into the throne room that God is king. The king dwells there. And in the ancient world, as you would get close to the king's chamber, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be stinky in there. That's where the king is. He's not surrounded by a stench. He is surrounded by nice, sweet-smelling things. Uh, and he's enthroned as the king. And so the incense is a pointer to God's royalty as he is there dwelling as king among his people. What does that mean for us? It reminds us that God is our Lord. The lordship of God. That God is king over our lives. We do not have the right to do with our time or with our money or with ourselves as we please. We do everything as unto the king. We are temples of the Lord, and God is our king. Second is this idea of acceptance. Acceptance. So first, lordship. Second, acceptance. The imagery of being accepted before the Lord is present here with the incense going up. And this is to be read along with chapter 29, verse 41. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So here are the images of the sacrifice goes up to God and using anthropomorphic language, God smells it. Now this is anthropomorphic language. This is figurative. God smells that and it's, a, it's the imagery is he's pleased with it. It's like when you go into the kitchen. And you smell something amazing. Maybe it's your favorite meal. You come home. Uh, maybe you're a man. You come home from work and your wife has made the, your favorite meal. You didn't even know. And you, oh, it's a pleasing aroma. And that's what is in view here. God is pleased with. He accepts that worship. And that's the reason why the incense is to be a fragrant incense. The picture is of it going up in conjunction with the morning and evening sacrifices. It goes up before the Lord and the Lord accepts his people. That's the picture. And we recognize that the Lord accepts us for one reason. Don't think that the Lord accepts you this morning in and of yourself. Don't think that the Lord accepts you because of who you are and how nice you were yesterday to the barista. Or how nice you were this morning to your children or to your wife. Patting ourselves on the back. God accepts us for one reason alone. And here it is. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Why does God love us? Why does God prepare a home for us? Why does God providentially oversee all of our things in life, all of our ailments and turn them for good? Why does God grace us and protect us and guide us? 
Because he smells Christ. Because he has before his face always, praise God, that fragrant offering and sacrifice to him who is Christ. Don't think for a moment that you could approach God for a single millisecond apart from that pleasing aroma of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So come to God through Christ. Give thanks to God through Christ. Dwell and take delight in being in Christ. Third, this idea of separation or holiness, the incense is also meant to cover the ark. So Leviticus 16, verses 12 to 13 says this, and he shall take a censer, this is the high priest on the day of atonement, he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Wow. So in addition to this incense altar depicting acceptance with God, it also depicts separation from God and holiness because on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the most holy place, the incense was meant to cover over the Ark of the Covenant so that the high priest would not be looking upon it and die. Finally, prayer. When we think about incense, we should think of prayer. In fact, the incense in Scripture is a symbol of prayer. Psalm 141.2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 5, 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I want to say this before we finish up this morning. How much does it invigorate our prayer life to think that all of our prayers are like this sweet, fragrant incense before the face of God? Pray, pray, pray to our Father who receives our prayers through Christ once again as though it is a fragrant incense in his face. The Lord calls us with this incense. He calls us to be a people of prayer, to be confident that no matter how much we feel it, no matter how tired or distracted we are, he calls us to seek his face and to know that in our praying he hears, but not just hears, he receives it with delight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this imagery and this, these symbols. We thank you for all that it truly meant, not just symbolically, but all that it truly meant for Israel. All that they experienced of your glory and your grace and your presence through the tabernacle system. But Lord, we praise you that it was a picture, a pointer, an anticipation, a type of what you would do in Christ and what you would do in the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost and beyond and what you will do in the new heaven and the new earth. God, we praise you. We are in awe of you. We thank you for Jesus, that sweet, fragrant offering. Lord, as you said at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Father, we praise you this morning that you are so perfectly well pleased with Christ 
and that in him you are well pleased with us. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.